Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Matthew. Episode 231, recorded for the week of October 11th, 2023. The Cloud Pod takes the highway to the data zone. Good evening, Matt. I don't know, it wasn't very good. I tried. Tried for you because you wanted to be something. It was pretty good. It it was messing. It was better than what I could have done. Yeah. Well, there you go. it's not my, I'm in tech, not in music. <laughs> uh, well, we're without uh, Ryan and Jonathan this week. Uh, it's actually, you're lucky you're getting an episode at all. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of coordination. A lot of coordination, a lot of, uh, well, I could do it between this hour and that hour. And then like, well, I might be able to do it. And so uh, it was just a little bit hectic. Uh, hopefully we'll be back. To more normalness next week but uh we have uh just enough news for matt and i not to bore you to death and uh, we'll get right to it with terraform 1.6 getting dropped uh hashiconf of course is uh was this last week and so they announced several new features including uh things for waypoint and others but uh the interesting stuff was in terraform 1.6 in particular uh and so that is that the test framework which has existed in terraform since 0.15 has been basically completely replaced <laughs> with a much better version uh, the Terraform test allows authors to consistently validate the functionality of their configuration in a safe environment. Tests are riff- written using the familiar HCL syntax, so there is no need to learn a new language to get started. Uh, in addition, in 1.6, you're getting configure- config-driven imports, uh, which came with 1.5, get improved to support variable naming. Uh, so you no longer have to have just import existing things with a, with a static ID. Uh, new CLI improvements, and they've made several changes to the S3 backend remote state provider uh, to better align with the SDK and the official Terraform AWS provider. Uh, it should still work, of course, uh, but it will tell you things have been deprecated. If you have stuff in your state, you'll need to deal with that. Good luck to you if that's your case. Yeah, changes to backend state files are always fun. Especially when they're hosted remotely on S3. No, the test stuff is actually pretty cool. Um, and it's something I've tried to do with Terraform for years where like, I've done things like, hey, we put this in a pipeline in a test folder and it does the apply of the test folder, make sure it works and at least runs, but having it actually do, you know, I think there are some other tools out there that kind of does it, but having it all be native in here is nice. Um, I'm curious though, when this all got added, if it's going to be in open tofu because they forked it or if it's not going to be like, when do they add this to the code base? I mean, it's going to be in 1.6 for sure. So I thought they forked it at like 1.6 alpha. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly which one this came out of. Um, or uh, maybe they forked the one before that because that's when they changed license. It could be. Yeah, it's, it's probably after the license fork. So, yeah, I think 1.5 was the last in the old one. Uh, one of the interesting things uh, that you know wasn't part of this particular uh, announcement is that they're also adding in the capability to use AI to help you with your test cases. Um, and so basically the model, they built an LLM model to specifically trained on HCL and the Terraform test framework to help model authors begin testing their code right away. Uh, and so you can actually write your tests in more native English or then use the AI to help generate your actual test code, making it easier to use test-driven development than ever before. That's a pretty cool feature. I missed that now. So now I kind of want to go play with it. Right. I was uh, also thinking I'm going to go play with it. Uh, I actually did. I missed in 1.5 the... Um, the whole thing about the config-driven imports, because imports are horrendous for those of you who have ever done them, <laughs> trying to get them into an existing uh, config file from an existing asset. Um, and so I, I didn't realize they had changed the logic of how that worked, and so you, they actually improved it quite a bit. Um, but now, 
ideally, if this idea that you can use variable named IDs, you could actually programmatically probably point it at an AWS account or a GCP project and have it generate an entire stack for you. So very similar to what we've seen with Stackformer and things like that from friends of the show. Um, it's really kind of interesting what that might be able to do as well. So lots of potential in some of these cool things that they're doing with Terraform. Yeah, I'm going to go through a project shortly of importing a bunch of stuff and the import I import feature should be useful. So I'm looking forward to playing with that in a real world situation. Great. Docker is uh, in the news. <laughs> the Docker company, which has uh, been pretty quiet since they got bought and started charging you for enterprise features, uh, is offering a couple new things in the latest version of Docker. The first up is the new Docker build managed offering and then the Docker deb- debug service. The Docker build aims to simplify the so-called build process or the task of turning raw code files into container images. Building images can take up to an hour in some cases, but with Docker build, you can speed up the, t- the process by a factor of up to 39 times. Uh, it does this by performing many of the computations involved in the process on speedy cloud-based servers, which you can process the code and the build process much faster, as well as they provide all kinds of caching ideas for common layers uh, that are in many, many types of Docker containers. So you get a, basically a better dedicated Docker build environment managed by Docker if you're paying for the enterprise product. And then the Docker debug uh, is aiming to ease the task of finding and fixing code issues in container applications. Often your applications are written in different languages and have to be troubleshooted using different debugging tools. And developers likewise use separate tools for containers running in production versus on their local machines. The Docker debug provides all the debugging tools developers require in a single integrated package to reduce complexity and simplify deployment to your Docker console. I think the only time I've had a container take more than 15 minutes to build is when I was compiling Ruby into the container and like source compiling it from scratch. And even then I hated myself a little bit. So I'm kind of curious, even with Windows images, I don't think they've taken an hour. So you're not trying hard. Kind of curious. <laughs> or I'm doing something right. What are the One two? Of the two. I, I can imagine I can imagine a really complicated Docker image that has to like spin up uh, you know, some of the Java libraries like Spring Boot. You know, you got to build all that, and then you got to bring your Java binaries in. Maybe you have, maybe it's machine learning workload, and so you got to download a huge data set to your container as well. I can see like lots of things that could potentially be bad and could make it bad. But yeah, I, typically my Docker builds have never taken more than a couple minutes. I don't do. Yeah, and like if you're putting that much stuff in your container, I'm not really sure that you're doing it right. Well, you know, we all like to violate. <laughs> the purpose of these things everything so it uh <laughs> no everyone can find a way to break the break the monster and then they complain to the vendor and the vendor says a fine we'll fix your edge case and this is that scenario yeah but the debugging is kind of interesting i wish it was i wish it was done as a sidecar and I, maybe it is i need to go do some more research on it um you know because the the ability to get debugging tools into a container is kind of a hassle but if you could just like attach a sidecar to an existing container that had the debug tools that could dump from the process it could be really cool don't quite think this is what this is, but maybe it's a step in that direction. Yeah, I think it's kind of like the first step in kind of having a standardized platform, and then from there they can add on to it. It's kind of what I've gathered. All right, let's move to Amazon. Uh, and as I was saying to you earlier, DataZone <laughs> is now generally available. You can collaborate on data projects across your organizational boundaries. Uh, this is DataZone, of course, the new data management service to catalog, discover, analyze, share, and govern data between producers and consumers in your organization. 
And with Amazon Data Zone, data producers populate the business data catalog with structured data assets from the AWS Glue data catalog and Amazon Redshift tables. Data consumers can then search and subscribe to the data assets, the data catalog, and share with other businesses, uh, business use case collaborators. And consumers can use that data via tools such as Redshift or Athena. I mean, it's interesting that they're kind of starting to put all these pieces together because I feel like I've built out a lot of this and, you know, having the ability to kind of start to say, we don't, not that we just have all this data, but we can actually leverage it is, you know, going to be beneficial. So having the controls and governance in place should be useful for a lot of organizations and this one place, one stop shop for it. If you're new to data lakes and all these things, you know, was useful if you're starting net new retrofitting a lot of all other stuff into it could be a little bit more cumbersome. Yeah. Well, the main thing I think it's interesting about this is it's kind of a paradigm shift because a lot of companies, you know, had uh, data warehouses in the day and they would have a Tableau team or a crystal reports team and they would write all the reports for all the business users. And now you're saying, look, we're, we're not going to write the reports for you anymore. We're going to give them to you. We're going to give you the data in a way you want it. So then you can use your tools or your other software to analyze and import that data. And the, the challenge is, is that as the data warehouse team is converted to data lakes, the amount of data has just blown up exponentially. And so the ability for them to do handholding and things like that is really difficult. And so by being able to publish known data catalogs and then tell end users like, hey, yeah, just point your Excel at this or point you know, your own Redshift cluster at it. You're now democratizing and giving federated access to these things, but across control areas where you can really manage the governance of it, um, as well as data obfuscation and, and different things. So it's a lot of stuff that you would build around a data lake as a data lake team or as, a, as an enterprise ML team. But now you're just kind of getting out of the box, which is super nice. And Amazon profits. Yep. Just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Yeah. Uh, well, the Amazon C7A instances powered by the fourth gen AMD Epic processors for compute optimized workloads are now here. Uh, they have a maximum of 3.7 gigahertz frequency and are 50% higher performance compared to the C6A. You can get these in a one vCPU, two gig of memory uh, configuration at the smallest size and a maximum size of 192 vCPUs and 384 gigabytes of memory. I always like to use the A processor type, the AMDs. It was nice, easy, easy to convert, save some good money. I always felt like they ran nice and quick. You know, it was much easier to move to those versus, you know, having to recompile or making sure everything worked on the graptons. Yeah. The other thing about the AMD processors, uh, at least in the past, and I, you know, I don't think I've used them as much as that for some workloads, like very heavy data po- computation things. The Intel was always a better performer of it because Intel had the ability to ramp up and down the data pipelines going into the CPU buffers. Where on the, on the Amazon or on the, uh, the AMD side, you would have to basically uh, do that yourself and just shove as much data possible into the data processing buffer. And so if you had you know high batch operations, the AMDs typically always perform better than the Intels. But if you had a lot of computational shifting workload, the Intel would typically perform better because of that ramping capability and the way it would handle the sequencing into the CPU. That was all back in like 2005. <laughs> I don't know how much <laughs> of those things are really a problem anymore in modern AMD and Intel processor, or if they really are just as interchangeable as you want. But um, I have seen, you know, in some performance testing on certain systems, the C7 or the C6As versus the C6Is, um, there was a little bit of a discrepancy uh, in different workloads. Yeah, I always just found the cost savings was good enough that, you know, throw another server at it, 
and it kind of balanced out even in price to power and speed up of the throughput of it. My, I haven't gone to that level of detail and you just explained to me a full new level of <laughs> processors that I've never known about. <laughs> You're welcome. Makes sense though. Just never been to that low level before. Yeah. There's all kinds of things. If you like really get into the weeds or know somebody who's worked on building processors before, they'll walk you through all kinds of stuff. And you're just like, how, how did we even come up with this? Like even, even the whole concept of um, three nanometer production process for chips versus five nanometer versus seven and nine. The fact that we're doing three nanometers, like if you actually understand the size of three nanometers and that's the level we're doing, it just blows your mind. And like, I'm like, there's, are we going to get into sub nanometer level at some point? Like, I don't know how that's even going to happen. Is it, we're going to have to have like organic systems that create these things at a, at a, you know, at a very low level cell based perspective. Cause I don't know how you get much lower than three nanometers. So lower than a nanometer is a micrometer. Right. I look, oh no, sorry. That's larger. It's a picometer. Didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. But yeah, no, like the level that we're getting to and the performance we're already getting out of it is like insane. You're like, cool, we want to go better. I'm like, but I'm good with what we have now. I mean, I'll take more power for the same price, but. Yeah. I mean, they're saying, th- they're saying after three, we'll go to two in sometime in 2024. But yeah, like the amount of billions of dollars going into this investment in this race, because this is really how we've been sort of keeping up with Moore's Law, because we're not really changing. We're not really changing clock speed anymore, but we're changing the number of clocks that are on a on a die, and so it's uh right. it's really interesting. But um, yeah, there's also really fun things like if you talk to like super geeky people who are who like create bootloaders and things like that. There's all kinds of fun you learn about how like the computer initiates things like CMOS and RAM and these things and how that all works. But you know, if you're just a user or a higher level system admin like we are, you know, in the web space. You don't get into the nitty gritty of some of these uh, fun processor and Linux kernel tuning parameters that you need to understand at a really high level. I haven't done that since I had to build my own Gen 2 kernel. Right. Go. <laughs> that was fun. And then there was like the people that did Gen kernel and it just worked. And then there's people like, no, no, no. I'm going to actually only enable just the seven drivers I need. Right. That was more fun. Many hours of swearing at a computer. Well, they would do it to like squeeze out every ounce of performance they could out of their box <laughs> because they wanted to. And uh, yeah, you don't do that so anymore. It's like commodity and just you build fleets and fleets deal with the inefficiencies of that, you know, 1.5 or 6% CPU hit you're taking by having an extra kernel memory being used. And that was back in 2007, yep. I think it was, when it was a desktop computer. It was like a server-grade desktop that we built into a, um, a 3D scanning of your teeth in order to do crowns and you know other dental you know caps and stuff like that. And it was a wand, but the desktop was sitting there. And I've actually recently looked it up, and it's like went from like this really giant desktop, you know, which the only way they could get the performance out of it was Gen two and very specific kernel drivers and everything, all the way now down to like oh, it's just this handheld like iPad size device. You're like, wow, the world has in- in- improved over the years. All right, let's move over to GCP. A uh, couple, couple of cool things over there. First of all, uh, they're now moving to passwordless by default because uh, they're now making the pivot to passkeys. And so I thought we'd just about this for a second. Uh, support for passkeys is now available into in Gmail clients or in Google Workspaces. Uh, and you can now move away from those pesky, pesky so- uh, passwords that are trying to be fished and stolen from you all the time. 
the whole idea of this is that it makes your account more secure than ever. It does this by using a passkey, which uses either a fingerprint, a face scan, or a pin to unlock your device, and they are typically 40% faster than passwords. So basically, you're moving from a how fast can you type in your 16-digit password to some biometric or other key indicator uh, and a couple different components to pull together to become a passkey that you can then use to authenticate to your device or system or service. I mean, it's a great next step because, let's be honest, passwords are the bane of everyone's existence, even with... You know, I've used one password for many years now, and I have probably several hundred passwords, if not thousands of passwords in there, and all of them are random and still they get attacked. So moving to something like this, what always worries me is like the YubiKey that I have on my laptop, it dying and then having to like reset everything. And I know there's a way to like back up a YubiKey to another YubiKey. Mm-hmm. I just haven't ever figured out that whole process. Yeah. But the challenge that, you know, I always have with YubiKeys, um, you know, it works great on my desktop, but what if I'm trying to access my mail on my phone or I'm traveling and I just want to use a, you know, a library computer and you probably shouldn't do that anyways, but you know, with the VPN or some other way that, you know, it's secure or maybe your friend's computer you trust. Um, you know, if you don't have that YubiKey, <laughs> you're hosed, uh, which is always a bit of a challenge. And yeah. really the bigger complaint I always have about was between the phone and the thing. And so then there, you know, people start coming out with like, well, this YubiKey supports, lightning and USB-C. So you have best of both worlds and, you know, but that's just a hassle and not very convenient <laughs> for what you're trying to do. I mean, you could have just been on an Android and I just moved my YubiKey to the, my phone and just pressed the button the first time and I was in. Yeah. See, I would I have to have a special one. Yeah. I don't want that. I'll keep my blue text. <laughs> <laughs> have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS GCP Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOp solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPods sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice. Uh, Google Cloud is now going to go GovCloud, uh, or Governor, for you those in the UK. Uh, they're going to go with the Google Cloud Public Sector UK, a new division dedicated to helping government departments and agencies across the UK transform their operations with hyperscale cloud capabilities and their ultra-secure cloud cap- uh, configurations. So basically, the FedRAMP IL-2, IL-4 type things will now be supportable to you in the UK to meet the UK public sector requirements, which is great to see, uh, as I think there's a lot of interest from public sector companies or, or agencies all over the world who want access to more and more cloud resources and this makes your life easier yeah i mean it's an easy checkbox for them to say great we're in their gov cloud you know we still have to set it up securely but we don't need to like do all these extra things to make it be that way and it's just i think you're going to see this for every government regulation if you know like they've already been doing um you know for every country over time 
Vertex AI uh, feature store built with BigQuery is now ready for predictive and generative AI capabilities in public preview. The feature store is a fully powered by your organization's existing BigQuery infrastructure and unlocks both predictive and generative AI workloads at any scale. The feature store is a centralized repository for the management and processing of machine learning inputs, also known as features. So this is uh, interesting to kind of mix in here generative AI and non-generative AI <laughs> into one use case for basically the feature store. Uh, but anytime you can start uh, storing common patterns that your team is using to help train your models or train your different components to then feed your generative AI or your ML workloads, uh, this is a great capability and feature that I would recommend. They did have a couple of uh, quotes in here from like people like Shopify, Mark Antoine Bellinger, senior data developer. Feature Store 2.0 is a significant improvement in design. The reconfiguration of BigQuery as the offline store is a key change, eliminating the need for data duplication. And the speed of that low-latency online store ensures quick online inference for machine learning models that will unlock new live and responsive tools for our merchants. These improvements are a testament to our partnership with Google Cloud, and we're excited to see how these continued improvements can provide our merchants with an unfair advantage in the future. Yeah, I mean, just the, hey, we've done it once, we can store it, we don't need to regenerate it you know, multiple times and have it be exposed to multiple teams or you know departments or whoever it is. That right there is going to be key and really help everyone out. So, you know, we'll save you on your bill. It's stored. You know, he mentioned here the low latency online, so it should be quick to access. It's just a next, to me, it's the next step in a lot of these things is now that we have the output from all these models, we want to be able to use it in a, you know, scalable, easy manner. Great. Uh, Alloy DB Omni is now generally available. This is the downloadable edition of Alloy DB which offers a compelling choice for workloads, providing the flexibility to run the same enterprise class database across your on-premise environment or even other clouds or developer laptops. AlloyDB Omni even includes support for AlloyDB AI, an integrated set of capabilities built into AlloyDB for Postgres to help developers build enterprise-grade Gen AI apps using their operational data. They're also launching a preview of the AlloyDB Omni Kubernetes Operator, which simplifies common database tasks, including database provisioning, backup, secure connectivity, and observability. AlloyDB Omni is available with a monthly subscription for a 16 vCPU starter pack at $1295, $1,295 per month, or in monthly subscriptions of 100 vCPU blocks for $7,000 a month with discounts on one or three year commitments. It's only 100 vCore. Come on. See what else they can give us. Right. I sort of am kind of disappointed they didn't just make this open source because, you know, Postgres, of course, is already open source. And if you could. If AlloyDB had a significant advantage over Postgres, they could basically start dominating all kinds of workloads that are living on Postgres today and then just migrate them into GCP when you wanted to no longer manage those things. Very similar to what Azure does with SQL. Yeah, you can manage your own SQL server or you can pay us to do it and take care of all the heavy lifting. Yeah, isn't this just their managed... This is... They've kind of made their own database, right? It's their own database, kind of like Aurora. It's, it's yeah, I mean, it's very similar to Aurora. It's, you know, Postgres compatible. It, it basically uses similar technology under the hood, but it's their own custom custom thing they built uh, to be web scale and native to cloud and all those things. But, uh, you know, it's pretty powerful. I've seen a couple of tests uh, going from just, you know, Postgres on Cloud SQL to AlloyDB Postgres. Uh, and the performance improvements are pretty nice, just like you're going from Aurora you know, from RDS or Postgres to Aurora. Uh, and, you know, Aurora is not available to you in any way other than on the cloud. So, you know, this is a chance for Google to maybe say, hey, we can provide something that now you're not locked into us. You can run on any cloud and you get this advantage. That'd be nice. 
again, make it open source and make it available for me to get started anywhere could be a hugely valuable proposition. Yeah, but also they want you to kind of use their compute and all. I mean, it's yeah, it's the same thing on on Azure as hyperscale and SQL Server. Just they still. And then the Cloud Spanner, which is not available on prem, <laughs> although they do have a, a mock capability, uh, I think agent for local development. But the uh, basically, there's a new version of Cloud Spanner. Uh, which is their managed database service that's cloud native that will enable customers to process their information faster and more cost efficient than ever. The new cloud spanner focuses on proving the database performance. According to Google, the database provides 50% higher throughput at the same price you used to pay. They also say this now gives cloud spanner an edge over Amazon DynamoDB, which is funny because I think they always said the cloud spanner was more, more performant than Amazon services, but never called anything out specifically. And apparently all this time, Amazon DynamoDB was faster until now. So that's sort of funny. Uh, you can also now get your database up to 10 terabytes in size, up from 4 terabyte limit previously. So not only do you get a faster database, you can put more data into it and cause yourself more pain if it goes wrong. <laughs> your 10 terabyte database is failing. It's interesting. I think something in AWS, I think I think RDS originally had a 4 terabyte limit. So does Microsoft SQL, Managed SQL Server. And this and Cloud Spanner all had a 4 terabyte. And the next level, I think, for everything is 10 terabytes. So there has to be something with that four terabyte. I know like back in the day there was with like storage and 32 bit and all that type of stuff. But it's interesting that to me that all of them are at four and then it immediately jumps to 10, which is just an interesting. So I would, and I don't know this for sure. So I'm speculating. <laughs> so I believe there's, you know, you're talking about a, a four terabyte file. You start getting into file handler limitations of what you can do. And what I think they do is when they go from a four terabyte, they go from like single file type stuff to a striped type data set. And when you're going into a striped data set, you're typically talking about rules of three or five. And so if you're doing two terabytes times five drives, you end up at 10. You're at that rate. Yeah. yeah okay. Makes sense. I'm going back in my day to all my, you know, sysadmin infrastructure rate stuff in, in my head now. Yeah. So it may be a completely different reason why they do 10, but that, that's the logic one in my brain is that if, if it were four terabytes was two, two terabyte drive files put together or a single file limitation of four terabytes, then you want to divide it up and divide your conquer and raid five makes sense. And then, there you go. So. I'm sure there's a lot more detail. Someone that's actually running these things. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. <laughs> Do you know with this, if it's uh, is it just like in place or is it something that you have to upgrade? Cause I didn't see that in the article. Uh, it'll get upgraded in place. So it, it is released, but oh, you may okay. not have it quite yet. So it is being rolled out to all of their customers right now in some type of canary model, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, I'm sure if you really need more performance in your Spanner database, you can probably reach out to support and, and get access to it maybe a little faster. Yeah, I saw the rollout, but I didn't know if it was like rollout and then enable something. So Yeah, no, you're going to get... Oh, getting more disk space, you'll have to tell it you want that, but um, yeah, but the performance improvements, you'll get that just natively as they roll it out to everything. That makes sense. So in about two months from now, check your cloud spanner, see if you can scale down. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's move to Azure. And uh, this story you added to the thing because you thought it was cool. Uh, you can now apparently use CMK or customer managed keys at the database level with Azure SQL. Previously, you could only apply encryption at the host level via TDE. But there's a new capability, you can add encryption key at the database level on top of the TDE key to give you per database uh, encryption. 
Yeah. So, you know, when you're running a multi-tenant solution, having per database keys is definitely a little bit more preferred. So before you have to have it at the whole SQL level. So if you want to have different keys, you know, you would have to launch different SQL servers, which means you can't use that. So this for me at my day job is going to be extremely beneficial. That's great. I'm glad to hear it. I surprised this didn't exist already because I think I'm pretty sure an on-prem SQL server that is Azure SQL, you can deploy TDE on a per database thing. But I do, when I was thinking about it after I talked about this earlier, I do think it was on an instance level or potentially on a data file level or that limitation. So there's, you end up having basically put in, if you enable TDE, basically you have to have a temp space for each TDE key you want to use. And so you basically kind of end up with like micro segmentation of the instance. Uh, So this might be better than that. So, yeah, when I get to play with it, hopefully soon, it will be a nice thing. Uh, well, if you're excited to test something else, you can also now uh, resize your dedicated hosts. That's now generally available to you. Uh, this provides you dedicated physical servers for your workloads and now allows you to add more CPU and disk size and memory to them to meet your growing needs on your massive, expensive box. I mean, most of the time I've heard that people need dedicated hosts besides for Mac workloads is Windows Live. Before that, you just couldn't resize them at all. Kind of surprising. So I guess once you launched it, you were yep. stuck with it. Definitely see this being a valuable thing to, you know, as you grow, hey, I just need to grow it. And it doesn't not take down everything, move it over, relaunch it. At that point, you're not really that cloud native at that point. So. And then Microsoft has given us a terribly named service this week, winning the terrible name for a product award once again. Microsoft Azure Playwright Testing is a new service that enables you to run Playwright tests easily at scale. Playwright is a fast-growing open-source framework that enables reliable end-to-end testing and automation for modern web apps. And Microsoft Playwright Testing Service uses the cloud to enable you to run Playwright tests with much higher parallelization across different operating system browser combinations simultaneously. This means faster testing and quicker troubleshooting, which helps speed up delivery of features without sacrificing quality. Now, I did blame them for the playwright part, but apparently it's an open source component, so I blame the open source community for that one instead. Uh, there are three key benefits for the Microsoft Azure Playwright testing capability. First is scalability, because it scales with the needs of even the largest, most demanding web app. Reliability this is built on top of the Microsoft Azure platform. Really? That's your, that's your play? On, built on top of Azure it makes it reliable? Hmm, not sure. And they got yeah. three and things. Then ease wow. of use. Uh, Azure Player <laughs> Testing is designed to be an easy-to-use uh, capability, and you can start clicking without having to make any changes to your existing Playwright test uh, code. I mean, if you're already using the tool, adding on the ability to do unit tests, you know, and launching, you know, I think it from what my understanding is that like it will actually like launch web browsers and can kind of do you know, like multiple testing on OSs and web browsers and kind of mix and match and make sure it all works. The parallelization of it is definitely going to be key. And, you know, if it works, great. I mean, it means that you have better tests and less bugs in your application code. I'm all for testing. Have you ever heard of this Playwright thing before? This is the first time I've heard of it. 100%. Like, wasn't, um, like, Appium or something? Wasn't that, like, the big one that everyone used for web testing and web... Selenium was the big one, I know. Selenium is, yeah, that's the other one I'm thinking of. Yeah, I don't think I've heard of this one. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> is it yeah. on the Node.js community? Yeah, Node.js. Oh, it says Node, Python, Java, and .NET. All the examples I originally found were from Node.js, so my assumption is maybe they started there and then moved across. That's very possible. 
Yeah. Uh, of course, they don't have like a very simple like, where do we come from part of their web page? Like, tell me this answer in three seconds. Yeah, interesting. I'm going to check it out because uh, these type of things are always interesting to... Uh, they're always the doubles in how do you create the tests <laughs> versus how do you uh, how do you do the other parts of it. So, all right. Yeah, I'll ask a few of my people I know in the QA world if they've used it, and if they have, I'll get back to you guys. Yeah, you should ask your boss. She she loves these type of tools from the QA world. She was one of the yeah. people I was going to ask. <laughs> I have a few other friends in the QA world, weirdly. So you know, I was going to ask a few of them and see if they. Anything. Well, very good. That is it. We made it through the show, just the two of us. <laughs> Hopefully, we didn't bore anyone, but I think it was probably one of the faster shows with only two of us. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the thing is the less people you have, the show goes uh, a lot shorter. <laughs> so, well, I'm going to go get to my weekend, and uh, I'm sure you're going to do the same. So, have a great week. Uh, we'll see you next week here at the Clap Pod. Bye, everyone. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.